Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled The Epicenter. We are all likely familiar with the scientific term epicenter. To use layman's terminology, it is the spot on the surface of the earth directly above where an earthquake is taking place. Needless to say, we aren't likely itching to be found anywhere near the epicenter of an earthquake. But isn't it intriguing that when Christ died upon the cross, there was an earthquake? This message explores the idea of being right at the epicenter of God's redemptive purposes, even though it would seem lunacy to be at the epicenter of such an extraordinary upheaval. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The epicenter. Now that's a good earthquake term. And I like it. I've actually been thinking a lot about this word. This word just sort of floated to the surface uh, in my studies this week. And so I'm going to spend a little time in this, uh, this word. I'm going to violate certain etymological rules uh, and have fun with this word too. But uh, I'm not trying to teach doctrine through this word. I'm trying to enunciate something that is clear in God's word in and through this English word. Okay? So epicenter... In a very simple sense, let's see, I think I have a definition coming up, but it's, it's a word that is associated with earthquakes, typically, but it's not just that. That just happens to be the way we most uh, likely are going to hear it. So it's the center point of where an earthquake strikes. It is a place of danger, and there's usually a lot of suffering there. Let's just put it that way. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. This is the cross. This is the actual death of Jesus Christ, God Almighty. It says that there will be one that will come, and he will be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. And his goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. The one that was born in that virgin girl was not merely a conceived child of a man and a woman. It was of the seed of a woman, but he was conceived of by the Holy Spirit, His Father is, in fact, materially speaking, God Almighty. This is God, whose goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. And this man was not just a mere man, though he was a man. He was God. He was God Almighty. He is Jehovah come to save. The very meaning of the name Yeshua Jesus. Jehovah saves. I am saves. He is our salvation. You could say it in various ways. It's all true. Jehovah has come, and he has saved us. And this moment is not a small one in history. God is literally taking the brunt. He is taking the punishment. He is taking that which was due us, and he is absorbing it. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, yielded up the spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake. Uh, That's known as an earthquake, by the way. And the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. It's one of those things that most of us just skip over and go, okay. (laughs) And came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, by the way, you could poke at this, and there's a lot of very interesting things in this. When he died, the graves were opened, right? It says, many bodies of the saints which slept arose. So they had arisen. But they came out of the graves after his resurrection, which means what were they doing? Sitting in their graves for three days? Isn't that an interesting statement? They're sort of waiting. Has he arisen? Has he arisen? He's risen indeed. And then they come strolling out. 
What a scene that is. I've never seen a movie made out of that, of all these men and women walking out of graves when Jesus himself is walking out of a grave. But that's us. That's us. When he rose, we walked out of our grave. Isn't that an amazing picture? And went into the holy city and appeared unto many. That would be an awkward moment. Uncle Harold? (laughs) Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. Now most of us fail to notice the fact that there was an earthquake at the time of Jesus' death. It's just sort of a fascinating tidbit of trivial information. However, God goes out of his way to stick it in there. You see, there was an earthquake at his death. And so thus, my word epicenter has some value. I can work with it. The epicenter. Now, I broke it up for you to break it into its two Greek parts. Okay, we have epa and center, which come from the words epa, upon, on top of, or founded on, and then kentron, this middle, the center, the midst. And so we have that which is in or on top of the middle, the center. This is the cardinal point. This is the significant place. Now, most of us don't want to be in the epicenter. We want to be as far away from that because that's where the greatest damage is. That's where the greatest suffering is. We don't want to be in the epicenter. We don't want to be on top of the center of the great problem. And yet, you know what Christianity is? Well, I'll get to that. That which occupies a cardinal point. This is what epicenter means. Something situated on center in the position of greatest importance. So before we get to the earthquake definition, look at that definition. That which occupies a cardinal point, the most significant point. This matters. This is important. Out of all history, can you name a more significant event This is the defining event, and I know the resurrection is incredible, but the resurrection occurs because of this. The resurrection flows out of this. Yes, I agree that the ascension, the outpoured spirit, and the coming again of Jesus Christ are amazingly important points. However, Paul determined to know nothing but Jesus and him crucified. This is the epicenter. This is where all of the other things are changed from. This is the high mountain of Calvary. Everything in the Old Testament comes up to it and everything flows out with a river of living water out of his side from it. It waters all the land and turns it green and brings life. This is the moment. This is it. This is the epicenter. The place of greatest danger, the place of greatest suffering, This is where most of us don't want to be. Not many of us are attracted to a cross. We're not saying, oh, I'd like to live there. I'd like to meditate on that. And yet this is the epicenter. That which occupies a cardinal point, something situated on center in the position of greatest importance. So this is going to be a definition that you will more likely resonate with because this is what we usually typically will define epicenter as. The point on the Earth's surface, vertically above the hypocenter or focus of an earthquake. The point where an earthquake or underground exploding originates. I sort of like that definition. When you think of the cross, most of us aren't thinking of an epicenter. And yet that is the point from which the earthquake generates. 
This is the point where there's an underground explosion. I love the fact, especially since hell is considered to be in the earth, I love the fact that something went off and detonated. It detonated in the earth and it started right there at that cross. And all the powers of earth and hell were devastated. Yes, it's a place of danger and it's a place of destruction, I have to admit. But it's not your destruction. You see, your old man, the flesh, sin, the power of the devil, all the power of hell, even the grave, were devastated that day. That is their death point, and it's where you find your life. The central point of something, this is the third definition for epicenter, it's the central point of something. Typically a difficult or unpleasant situation, and often the place of greatest damage. Isn't that an interesting statement? The central point of something, typically a difficult or unpleasant situation, and often the place of greatest damage. Well, none of us are naturally attracted to that location. Who wants to go there? Who wants to go to the epicenter? So now I'm going to play games with this word. Okay, now this is totally unfit, you know, for any, you know, this is not the etymological root, which in other words, this isn't the base of how it was originally formed. However, I still think it's perfect. (laughs) The epic enter. Okay, now let's look at the two uh, pieces of this. Epic. That which narrates the deeds and adventures of heroic or legendary figures or the history of a nation. I love that word, by the way. Epic. If there's one thing that I would say Ellerslie has a desire to bring back, it's the epic story. It's the majesty of God. It's the bigness of God. Don't you realize who he is? And so I love this. This word just sort of has it in there. And what's the second word? Enter, to come or go into. And so here's a way of looking at it. Entering the hero's deed, coming into the legendary work of the cross and calling it home. Fixing your bed, your dresser, your desk, and your hopes to the blood-stained labors of the epic champion and resolving to stay forever. I'm moving in. This is Christianity. It's called in Christ. What's your position? In Christ. You see, you say, that's my home. I live in his life. His life was poured forth at that cross. Out of his side flowed a river. It was blood and water. What is promised to us is that there will be a fountain that breaks forth in Jerusalem and it will literally bring life into the land of Israel. It's a living river. It's called the rivers of living water. In the Hebrew, blood is life. So you mix blood and water together and what do you have? You have life water. That fountain was opened in Jerusalem on that high hill at Calvary at the epicenter of the great earthquake, out flowed a river. And that river is a source of life, not just temporary life for a day, but eternal, everlasting life. To gain that life, Christ has made a way. He's, there's a door, and it's unlocked. And in and through his shed blood of the cross, he has created an atoning sacrifice for our sin because we have no access into the holiness of God. We have no access into the righteous presence, the blazing purity of God Almighty. But in his atoning shed blood, 
there is an atonement or a propitiation, which means it's, there's a just and satisfying offering for our sin. So that we then can actually enter into that life and be clothed and call his life our life. Call his righteousness our life, our righteousness. Call his perfection our perfection. Call his holiness our holiness. And we now have access into the life of God where we can be drawn near unto the throne room of grace and we can know the Father. We can be adopted as his sons and daughters. This is what it means to make our home in Christ. And so we pick up from where we were. You see, we don't live in the middle of danger. We naturally gravitate towards that place of comfort. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that little, I don't know if it's a story or a tale, I don't even know what to call it, but someone said there were two pictures of two churches. And one church was this beautiful countryside, meadows surrounded it, and the clouds are opening up, and there's this bright sunlight shining upon the church, and you can almost hear angel choirs going, ah, ah. That was a terrible angel choir. <laughs> and then you have another one, which is surrounded by blackness, and there's demons, demonic hosts all around it, with swords drawn, angry faces. There's no angel choir in this story. You're not seeing it. All you see is battle. You see bloodshed. You see difficulty. You see danger. And so the question is, in which church does God reside? Well, which one do you think? Of course, it's the one with the heavens opened up and the sound of, you know, the angel choir, isn't it? Someone said, well, if God is truly in that church, the way you can tell is that all hell comes against it. Huh. That's an interesting perspective on it. You see, that's sort of similar to this. There is no greater battleground than that cross. That is the war zone. And God says, are you willing to give up your nice, comfortable spot in the meadow over there and come live here and find your life in my work? Find your life in my sacrifice. Find your life in my shed blood because this is where you live. If you want the resurrection, you need to come to the cross. You need to first give up your life as you know it and enter into my death. And when you enter into his death and the old man, your old life, is thrown off. You put off an old man to put on a new man, Jesus Christ. To enter into Christ, you can't get through the doorway with your old man on. You have to leave it behind. You have to repent of that, and you have to forsake it. You leave it behind and enter into the new man. You have new clothing now. You have a new home. Do we have to live here? Do do. Why do we have to be at the epicenter of the earthquake? This is danger zone. This is Christianity. We enter into the most dangerous place on earth. You are literally, and when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you come to Jesus Christ, you're coming to the one who is hated, hunted, and despised. The earth that loves their darkness hates the light. And you have the audacity to enter in and call the light your home? Don't you know what you're getting yourself into? I do. I am willing to stand against the world if necessary to call him my home because I have no life outside of him. So entering, I'm just going to read this again for us, entering the hero's deed. This is epic enter. 
entering the hero's deed, coming into the legendary work of the cross and calling it home, fixing your bed, your dresser, your desk, and your hopes to the blood-stained labors of the epic champion and resolving to stay forever. I have come and I've forsaken all, and this is where I will live. This is where I will abide. The epicenter. Well, it's the place of the great earthquake. So the epicenter of all epicenters is what we know as Calvary, the cross, the place of the skull. One of the things I love about even the name, the place of the skull, that's a dead head. A skull is just a dead head. And what's interesting is the serpent's head is crushed. It's the place of the skull. Isn't that an amazing statement? This is the place where your old head, the old man, is literally crushed. The flesh no longer has rulership over you. Crushed under the heel of God. Isn't that an amazing statement? This is the epicenter. This is the place of, of war. It's the place of battle. The epicenter. Well, this is strange. The place to call home? Well, who in their right mind is going to call this place home? The most dangerous place on earth. Yeah, yeah, that's where I live. And what's your position? In Christ. You could say, yeah, the most dangerous place on earth. And you'd be telling the truth. You have chosen the war zone. You have chosen the most difficult place. It's not in that country meadow. It's in the middle of battle. When you come to Christ, you count the cost. And you understand that life to be had means you have to forsake life as you know it. For the life that you truly desire, to gain it, you must forsake the life you've always known. The epic enter. The willingness to come to the most dangerous place on earth, say goodbye to all earthly security, enter the blood-sealed door of the bruised and bullet-riddled house, and call this scourge-spat-upon, blood-stained, earthquaked war zone your home forever and always. Well, that's a whole new perspective on getting in Christ, isn't it? So what was your position? Are you sure you want to remain there? Are you sure this is where you want to abide? Are you sure you want to stick your life into such a location? Don't fear the dangerous place. And you can say, well, easier said than done. Listen to this. For the greatest danger is actually the safest place in the entire universe. To enter into that cross is actually safety from everything that could possibly harm you. It's an amazing thought. The most dangerous place on earth is actually the most secure. It's called salvation. What a strange name for that place. You're actually calling that place salvation. Yes, that place is not just some little hut. It's a person. And that person is not just some mere man. He's God. Have you ever studied God? Read the book of Job when God opens his mouth and tells Job to be silent. And you'll hear about God Almighty. He has created the heavens and the earth. He holds everything in just the hollow of his hand. He is over all. He's in control of all. With the breath of his nostrils, he can eliminate all of us. Do you think he fears the enemy camp, the enemy kingdom, and the movement of darkness? All the nations could surround him and plot and conspire to destroy him, and the one enthroned in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. 
Where have you come? Who have you called home? You have called Jesus Christ home. You see, the government will oftentimes hollow out a mountain like NORAD or Fort Knox, and they will move in and store their most precious things there. And the president in a time of war will go into a place like NORAD in the middle of a mountain. And even with a nuclear blast, we're not exactly sure, but people oftentimes will believe that, yes, even during a nuclear blast, if you're in that mountain, you could still be spared. I'm telling you, possibly one of the most dangerous places on earth is in Colorado Springs near NORAD. Because if the president is going to go there, where do you think they want to hit? And yet, possibly one of the safest places is right there. Isn't that an amazing thought? However, we're not entering into NORAD. We're not entering into a mountain of granite. We're entering into a mountain of diamond. A million, ten million, a trillion miles thick. I don't know how to give a proper illustration, but nothing can blast through it. Nothing. There isn't a single thing in all the heavens and the earth that can harm you in the midst of that mountain, in the midst of that refuge. And yet that refuge is built in the epicenter of the war zone. That place is a place of battle and a place of war. The enemy has labored long and hard to diminish the work of that cross. And he constantly attacks and belittles and attempts to, with his bullets, shred that place to bits. And yet no matter what he does, it still stands. That little shanty on that hill called Calvary. That place called Jesus Christ that though we see the badger skin tabernacle, you see, in the wilderness, there was a badger skin laden tabernacle, and it didn't maybe even look that impressive. But what truly it was the preface for was the limestone, the glistening white limestone temple. You see, Jesus, when he was down here on this earth, we didn't get the glimpse of him in his glory. We saw him as a humble carpenter, and many were offended at him. He didn't have any beauty or comeliness that we would desire him. He was badger skinned. And yet that little shanty that looks weak, looks like a suffering man who's guilty of some crime. And yet as we turn to it and we say, in that house is my salvation. And we come unto that cross and we say, can I find entry here? And everyone in the world mocks you and says, you're going there? To the criminal? To the liar? To the crazy man? I am. Because he's no crazy man. He's no liar. He's my God. And he is truth. And he is my salvation. He's the only way to the Father. And so you come under the shanty and guess what you find? The door is opened for you. And you enter in even though everyone around you ridicules you and you say you enter there, you're a dead man. Because this entire world is hunting that hut. That little shanty is the epicenter of the hatred and the venom of all hell. And that's where you've chosen? Your home? Situate your dresser over here. Make your bed here. This is my home. This is my home forever. And then you go out and stand on the streets of Jerusalem right outside and go, hey, yeah, you know that shanty you've been making fun of? I call it home. And they build a cross for you too. Whoa, whoa, keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about it. If you're in the shanty, act like you're not. Because if they find out you're in it, they'll kill you too. And yet, what does Jesus say? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You do not fear them. Let them fear you. You go into this world with the authority of Jesus Christ and you proclaim that there is still only one means of salvation and that little shanty on that hill, covered in blood. It looks like a suffering place, a place of misery, but actually, that is salvation. It's a person that we've entered into. 
It's the greatest danger, but it's the safest place in the entire universe. In the middle of the middle. I know, it's a strange statement. Let me explain. Revelation 5. I gave a message called the 24 elders a few weeks back. And what it was talking about is the authority of the New Testament. And there's this scene in Revelation, which is quite unusual and intriguing. And it parallels with a scene in Isaiah 6 in the Old Testament. But what we see is we see a throne. We see four beasts in the throne with six wings each. And then we have 24 elders around the outside. And they all see something. These 24 elders that sit around the outside see something. They're all seeing the same thing. And the term is they encircle the throne. What do they see? They see in the midst of the throne a lamb. But he's not just a lamb. He's a lamb as if slain. And they all testify of it. I see it too. It's a lamb as if he's slain. So one of the things I was talking about is in the Hebrew Old Testament, they have the exact same books. It's the same thing. We have 39 books, but the Hebrews divided them differently than we did. And so they had 24. They had 24 witnesses. They all saw something. What did they see? They saw the suffering Messiah that was to come. And they sat around the throne, and they couldn't fully make out what they were seeing. They didn't understand it. A lamb? A lamb. Well, we use lambs for clothing and for sacrifice and for food. A lamb? Yeah, clothing, sacrifice, and food. And he appears slain, like he's suffering, but lambs are innocent. Why would he suffer? They all saw it. They all bear witness to it, but they didn't fully understand it. However, you understand it. It's amazing because it's unlocked. The mystery is unlocked in the person of Jesus Christ. So what I want to emphasize is not that, but in be, I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne. Where is this lamb? Well, we're going to find out that he's in the midst of the throne. Now, there's other things there, too. We have the four beasts, which is quite an interesting statement. I'm not going to talk about the beasts right now. And of the four beasts, so in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. So in the center of all of this, in the center of the throne, is a lamb as it had been slain. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water. Huh. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Okay, that's just what they're seeing. That's what John is even witnessing. He sees 24 around the throne. Now, he knows who that lamb is. He does. I mean, he was the one that wrote the book of John, the, the gospel account, of talking about this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's not an idiot. And yet he's declaring to you what he's witnessing. The 24 that stand around or sit around the throne. So in Revelation 7, 17, it says, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne. And in this, there's two Greek words, and we only translate one because it almost seems like we're saying the same thing twice. And that's the ananmesos, which is, both of them are like in the midst of the middle. In the midst of the middle, that's where you get my term, in the middle of the middle. In the very center of it all, all the scriptures, all the testimony, all the witness, all the glory, all the power. In the midst of the throne, the position of all authority, control, dominion, in the very center of the center is a lamb that was slain. It's the cross. 
It's that little shanty. I know it looks weak. I know it's not that impressive. A lamb is not one that we would typically think of following, let alone living within. But there's a gash in his side. And in that gash, he says, enter. You see, we have access. It says in Ephesians 2 that we are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. Where's Christ seated? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are in him. Where does that put us? Well, it puts us at the cross when he died. It puts us at that resurrection when he rose. And in the ascension and in his seated position, we are in a seat of authority. I have no business being there, by the way. If you want to compare notes, I'm sure you'd be able to say the same. I, I, what am I doing there? How, how did I get seated in heavenly places? In Christ. We are in the center of the center because we've entered into the work of the cross. And he is there. It's an incredible thought. For the lamb which is in the center of the center of the throne. See, what I've just given you is actually the secret to what we could call hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you approach scripture, the the way in which you approach scripture to properly handle it and interpret it. And so what we would say is the great secret to hermeneutics and properly handling scripture is you need to know what is the center of the center. What is the Bible about? What does it all point to? If you have a wrong north star or you have a wrong place that you fix your compass, your compass is going to be off. You'll have the wrong north. What do we fix our compass to? To the center of the center, to the north star. What's the north star? Jesus and him crucified. It's that little shanty. I know it doesn't look that impressive, but that is the center. And when you fix your compass, and all of us fix our compasses the same, we're going to find that we walk in agreement. Eh, There's still some small things we may disagree on, but guess what? We're going to walk in agreement because we have the same north star. So the lamb which is in the center of the center, he died on Passover, and he is the paschal lamb, the lamb of suffering. That is Jesus. And it happened on Passover. And that is the center of the center. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's Paul talking to the Corinthians. Does he know anything beyond that? Yeah, but he determined. You see, he knows what is the center of the center. And so as a result, the way he handles truth, the way he handles his preaching, the way he handles his living is that it is all centered upon the center. And in the center of the center, out of the center of all the Bible, because it doesn't mean that all the witness before him doesn't matter, but they all point to him. If he's going to handle the book of Isaiah, what is he going to bring out in the book of Isaiah? He's going to show the suffering lamb. He's going to say, do you see that? Isaiah is seeing a lamb in the midst of the throne. Let me tell you who that lamb is. Let me explain it to you. In the Psalms, you get to Psalm 22, and what is it talking about? Who is it referring to? It's referring to the lamb in the midst of the throne, who I know by first name. His name is Yeshua, Jesus. He is Jehovah who has come to save. And he bore our humanity. He was born in a virgin girl in the town of Bethlehem. And he grew up and lived a sinless life. No guile was found in his mouth. And he, though he was God Almighty, and no man could possibly harm him rightfully and lawfully, for in him was no sin, he laid down his life and he gave himself into the hands of sinners. And he suffered, was abused, was mocked, was ridiculed, was despised. A crown of thorns was pressed upon his head. His beard was ripped out. He was struck in the cheek. And they crucified him. And he bore the suffering and the pain and the penalty that was rightfully all of ours. 
But in and through that death, he has satisfied justice. And so when you turn to him and believe in that work, you enter into that work. And that work becomes your work. And it atones for your sin. And in that work, you have forgiveness of sins. You have a purging of your conscience. You have a cleansing and a washing. It is all available in that shanty. It is all available on that hill. That shanty that's covered with badger skin. It doesn't look attractive. It's at the epicenter of an earthquake. Who wants to live there? And all of us raise our hand and say, I do. And the rest of the world around us mocks us and ridicules us and says, what is your problem? Obviously, I'm seeing something that you're not seeing. I see hope. I see life. I see salvation. And I see it there. We see a shimmering mansion. We see a glorious temple. You see, we don't see the epicenter of horrors and suffering. We don't see a little shanty covered in blood. We see the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We see the Almighty One, the Ancient of Days. We see the one that is worthy of our life, the one we bend our knee to and declare that he is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. You see, something's happened to our eyesight. We're not seeing the same thing the rest of the world is seeing. They're seeing a shanty riddled with bullet holes. They see danger. They see difficulty. They see trials and tribulations. We see glory. We see peace. We see joy. We see him. What are your eyes seeing? The epicenter is where we've been called to live, to abide, and to stay forever. We reason from this point. We live from this point. We think, we talk, we preach from this point. We come unto that man on that hill, into his life that he has opened up in and through his suffering, in and through his death. We have access into his very life and his his existence, his power, his nature, his love. And we live from that point. Jesus and him crucified. Well, it's the epicenter of all history. You take all history, and it's divided in half at the life of Jesus. But then Jesus' life, if you want to talk about the most significant moment, it's not when he was born and laid in a manger. He came for a reason. And it was for this reason that he came. And in the fullness of time, this is the epicenter of history, in the fullness of time, he suffered and he died on that tree. And I'm not trying to diminish the resurrection. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there. However, this is what gives meaning to the resurrection. Jesus was already alive. The resurrection's not for his sake. It's for ours. He is an unstoppable life. He came in the power of an endless life. And the word endless means unstoppable, indistinguishable. I'm sorry, inextinguishable, indissoluble. It cannot be put out. That's the power he came in. However, we were cut off from that life. He came in the power of an endless life to bring us into the power of an endless life so that our life would be inextinguishable, so that our life, which is not ours, it's his, but since we're in him, we have it, and we have it forever, so that our life would be indissoluble, so that our life would be unstoppable. It's the epicenter of all history. It's the epicenter of all truth. All truth is defined. It's the key that literally causes all doctrine to make sense. The whole Old Testament is riddles and mysteries until you have Jesus to stick into it. And when you have Jesus, suddenly it all makes sense. I understand. Isaiah 53 now. The Ethiopian eunuch stared at it. He goes, what in the world is it talking about? And Philip says, let me tell you. 
It's the epicenter of all revelation. It's the epicenter of all righteousness. It's the epicenter of all doctrine. It's the epicenter of all life and power. Everything we need is found in that little shanty. The blood-stained, suffering, bullet-riddled shanty at the center of the battle, scarred, pierced hands and feet. This is the location, right there. And if we come there, we find life. What a strange place to find life. In death? Who would ever guess that you would come to death to find life? And that's where we come. We come to his death. And his death becomes our death. Because unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bear any fruit. You see, this is a corn of wheat. And when we enter into it, our old life falls into the ground and dies as well. And as a result, it's not only his life that rises, but our life rises with his. The two great earthquakes of the gospel. What? There's two? There's two earthquakes? You remember the earthquake of the cross. You know that, oh, I don't know what it is, maybe could be even less than 100 yards away is the, the gravesite of the tomb, the little carved-in cave-like structure of Joseph of Arimathea, the one who craved the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave it to him, and Jesus was buried in a borrowed rich man's grave. It's not that far away. And did you know that there was another earthquake? Yeah, see, God's sealing something. He's saying, yeah, this is the place. This is the epicenter. See, out of all the universe, God chose our solar system. Out of all the solar system, he chose earth. And out of all earth, he chose Israel. And out of all of Israel, he chose a little city, a little plot of land called Jerusalem. And out of all Jerusalem, he chose this spot. I mean, this is not literally out of all the universe, he chose this spot to reveal his glory. This spot to save all of us. This is the epicenter. And he says, uh, people, do you see it? This is the spot. Don't look anywhere else. There's all sorts of high places in this earth that you can go to and find a false sense of security, a false sense of benefit and blessing. This is the only place. Well, that's not attractive. I don't want to go there. You have to humble yourself to go there, don't you? You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to recognize your need for that shed blood. So the two great earthquakes of the gospel, the cross and the resurrection. Did you know that at the resurrection there was an earthquake? And behold, there was a great earthquake. Well, that's strange. For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. There was an earthquake. And what was the epicenter? It was right there. This little spot. It's a cross. And it's a tomb. (laughs) Who wants to go there? Don't lay me in that tomb. And yet... What we see is that these two locations are the very basis of our hope and our life, and yet they're both symbols of death. Uh, People die on crosses. People suffer on crosses. That's a penalty for criminals. In the Hebrew culture, it's even more than that. Those that hang on a tree are cursed of God. The reason you would hang them on a tree is so that it would be declared to everyone looking on. They are both rejected of heaven and they're rejected of this earth. And so they hang in the balance in between, cursed. And Jesus became a curse for us. Well, a gravesite is not a place that we want to be. It's a place of rotting, deterioration, death. Dead men live in caves. And yet God hallmarks this and says, I need you to come to this cross. 
and this cave. Because out of it will spring forth life and life abundant. Life eternal, unstoppable, inextinguishable, indissoluble. The secret to understanding the scriptures. Live, breathe, study, reason, and interpret from this spot, the most dangerous place on earth. So we come to this spot in Jerusalem. We come to this little shanty. We come to this little gravesite, and guess what? It is there that we pick up our tools for biblical study, for understanding God, for preaching, for sharing the gospel. If we don't come there, we miss the whole thing. And yet to come there means to risk our life as we know it. Well, how about I say it this way? To give up our life as we know it. It's a place of war. It's a place of battle. It's a place of death. It's a place of suffering. And yet that's not how we see it. It's a place of life. It's a place of hope. It's a place of peace. It's a place of joy. It's a place of victory. It's a place of salvation. It's a place of rescue. Isn't that ironic? The world has one lens, and we as Christians have a completely different lens. Some people, you know that scent to that fragrance of Christ that is upon a Christian? To some people, it's a fragrance of death. It's like, what? This is a fragrance of life. What's wrong with you? And to others, it's a fragrance of life. It depends on your soul. Have your nostrils been changed? Do you have supernatural nostrils to ascertain the beauty and the fragrance of heaven? Or are you still stuck with the nostrils of this earth? That anything that smells of Jesus Christ, of the need for a savior, of calling me needy and wanting and lost, how offensive. Well, then you can't smell it, can you? And you don't see how significant this location is. Acts 8. And the angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is the desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. We have a Jew, an Ethiopian Jew, that is found in the desert, the same place the Jews remain still to this day. They have not crossed over in the power of Joshua, who is the same name as Jesus, Yeshua. They have not been led into the fullness of the promise. And so there they are, still with their limited understanding and sight, just like Moses. He could stare into it, but he couldn't taste it. He couldn't walk in that land. They're still under the law. And so Philip comes out into the wilderness from Jerusalem. He comes into the wilderness, and what does he run into? A Jew. And this Jew is struggling. He, he has the scriptures, but he can't understand the scriptures. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all the treasures, had come to Jerusalem for to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and he read Isaiah the prophet. Oh, we got him, guys. We got him. He's reading Isaiah. Do you know that Isaiah testifies of Jesus over and over and over and over again? This guy doesn't know that, though. He doesn't see it. He can't perceive it. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, listen to this question, Understandest thou what thou readest? You see, what does Philip have? Philip lives in that shanty. Philip lives in Christ Jesus. Philip has the key that this Ethiopian Jew needs. This man who's still in the desert. This man who has not been able to taste the promise. The Messiah has come and yet he has not ascertained it. He doesn't know. He doesn't know how good it is. He can't see it. 
Do you understand what you're reading? Says Philip. What does the Ethiopian say? And he said, how can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb dumb before her shears, so opened he not his mouth. You see, what's funny is you're like, he doesn't know what that means. You see, you have a key because you have come into that shanty. And when you come into that cross, it all begins to be clear. Do you remember Jesus healing that man that was blind? and He healed him in two phases. The first time, the guy's like, Jesus is like, so? And the guy's like, you know, I, I can see, but... Not very clearly, men look like trees walking. Well, that's the Old Testament for you. They saw the Messiah, but they couldn't totally see the Messiah. And as a result, many of them missed him. They couldn't make out the clarity. What did they need? They needed something. Philip has that something. Watch how that something changes the story, how it changes the Jew. And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before her shearers. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him. Jesus. What did he preach? He didn't preach eschatology. He didn't preach soteriology. He didn't preach sabbatology, cosmology. He preached Jesus. Jesus and him crucified. Um, my dear Ethiopian eunuch friend, I would like to take you to Jerusalem. I would like to show you where I live. I would like to show you this hill called Calvary. This is the epicenter. And when you see this, you will understand Isaiah 53. But not just Isaiah 53. You'll understand Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 54. You'll understand all of Isaiah. And not just that. You'll understand what all the 24 witnesses around that throne are seeing. You will understand that lamb in the midst of the throne who is slain. You will see it. You will know it. You will comprehend it. For they all spoke of it. And you understand it. You see it right here. You believe this is the word of God. But who does it speak of? You yourself are asking the question. And I give you the answer. Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. That is the answer to all doctrine, all scripture, all life, all salvation, all hope, all need of righteousness, all need of holiness, all need of perfection. It is not you. You are not the key to stick in the lock. Your self-effort, your own willpower, your own righteousness will not do it. You will still be lost in Isaiah 53 and not discern it. You will not be able to tell. You will be the one in the wilderness sitting on your chariot saying, begging a Philip to come sit with you. Please share with me what this does mean. I must know. The answer is simply Jesus. And if you come to that shanty and you spend your life there, you make that your abode, you make Jesus your home, and you abide in him, you will have the answer that this generation so desperately needs to hear. 
But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Don't leave this hill. Just because you prayed a prayer when you were seven, do not leave this hill. You remain there. You call it your home. You move in and you live there forever. You abide in this place. You abide at that cross and you abide at that resurrection. You make that the center of your life. That is my life. What he did is solved all the riddles of my soul. That is where I find hope. And I will find it nowhere else for the rest of my days, even throughout all of eternity. I will worship the lamb that was slain in the midst of the throne. All throughout eternity, there still will be the wounds. There still will be the show of the side being pierced. And we will remember, for that's where we live. That is our home forever and always. When we get to heaven, we don't move out of Jesus. We remain in Jesus always. He is our righteousness. He is our home. He is our salvation. He is our lifelong abode. Our life in him is eternal. And unless someone can figure out a way to snuff out the life of God, they cannot snuff your life out. You will not fear death. You will not fear the grave. Why? Do you think he should? Death has no power over him. And where do you live? In him. And since you are in him, you do not fear death. Since you are in him, you do not fear the devil. Does the devil have some power and control over Jesus? No. And where do you live? In Jesus. You see, the safest place on earth, the place of salvation and rescue, is actually the most dangerous place, the place of greatest assault, the place of greatest battle, and yet you don't fear that battle. No weapon fashioned against you can prosper. Greater is he that is in you than he that is coming against you. You do not fear that which man can do. You do not fear what the devil can conspire against you. It will not succeed, for he is fighting against God. Where do you live? What is your position? Remain in that position. Abide in that position, and you will not fear the war zone in which you live. In Christ, surprise, Jesus is meant to be entered like a door, like a strong tower, like clothing, like a house. He's the place we are to live and call home. The epic entry. That's epicenter, my creative way of using it. The epic entry, a.k.a. the entry into the epic. This is Christianity. This is where it starts. We leave behind the dull and mundane and miserable and defeated. I don't know why any of us wants to live there anyways. However, many of us love the control that we have over our life, and we do not want to let go of the controls of our life and let Jesus have us. We're afraid of what he will do, and yet it's because we have never taken a clear picture. We've never seen and understood who he is, his nature, his character, his love, his perfection, his truthfulness. He is trustworthy. He's known as faithful which means when we put our confidence in him, he will perfectly match it and beyond. He will go exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. Do we know him? Have we seen him? So the epic entry is to forsake our old life, our life of misery and defeat, and to enter into his great work, his epic, his epic victory, his majestic work. When we enter into that, our life has changed. The epicenter of the gospel the epicenter of the life that actually works. When you enter into Christ and you are in Christ by faith, then you've entered into a life that actually works. If you still are struggling with a life that doesn't work, you esteem Christianity, you're still in the wilderness along with the Ethiopian eunuch, 
What you need is to enter into this house and recognize that everything you need is in his pantry. Everything. You need boldness? Well, it's available to you in Christ. What's your position? In Christ. So I'm not asking you to check your pockets for boldness. You're a wimp. You're a coward. I'm saying if you're in Christ, you have it. In Christ, it's made available to you. You have courage. You have boldness. You see, I'm not asking you to come up with righteousness. I'm saying in Christ, you have righteousness. In Christ, you have the greatest gift of all. You have him. You have his power. You have his life dwelling in you called the Holy Spirit. You know what? There's no excuse for living a mediocre life anymore. Because if you have come to that house, you have access to everything he is. The entire inheritance is yours. He opens up the pantry and says, explore it. Taste and see how good I am. Use it to my glory. Everything you see, put it to work. Put it into this world. Bring it from my pantry and give it to others. It's all available to you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Take it and truck it into the open. Take it from me and give it. Freely I'm giving it to you. Now freely give it to others. I'm giving you the resource of heaven. Access to all I am. Take it. Take it into the streets of Jerusalem and stand for me. And when they strike you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. They will hate you for my sake because you live here. But I'm telling you, here is where you have life. Take from this and give it to them, even if they spurn you and even if they crucify you. You love them. It's the epicenter of the life that actually works. Simply put, it's the epicenter of Christianity. This is where we find life. We find it in Christ. Because in Christ we find the great gift of Christ being in us, and that's how Christianity functions. We can't do it. He can, and he will do it in us when we are in Christ. It's the epicenter of the entire Bible, all doctrine and all preaching. Every sermon that's worth its salt comes back to this earthquake, comes back to this epicenter. If you don't reason, if you don't preach from this epicenter, what are you giving? You're not giving life. You're giving facts, maybe. You're giving doctrine. But that doctrine to live within a soul, there's two aspects to doctrine. You have just like two aspects to a seed. You have a pith in the seed, and you have a shell to the seed. Which one's more important? And that's a difficult one, isn't it? Well, you need both. However, the pith is the life-generating dimension. The shell is what keeps the life-generating generating dimension safe and secure. If you only have one, if you have a shell, by the way, it doesn't do a lot. If you only have the life-giving pith, if it's not covered, it will dry up and it will not generate life. You need both. The life is found at the cross and in that empty tomb. This is where we find life. It's at that earthquake. And yet, the rest of the Bible is the shell that supports it and holds it together and maintains that life. So we do not forsake the rest of the text just because it doesn't directly mention the cross. It all indirectly points to it. It is what we need to see more clearly the great Messiah and his work. The place of the earthquake. The place of our rescue. It's the place of our eternal living. It's the place of suffering. It's the place of victory. It's the place of war. It's the place of peace. It's the place of agony. It's the place of joy. What a location. That is where we live. 
You know, a lot of people shy away from Christianity because they just, they don't want that. Look, I want life to be easy. You cannot have an easy life and end up where you want to go. You have to choose Jesus. If you don't choose Jesus, you may have an easier life this side of hell. But I tell you, hell is not going to be very pleasant. If you're seeking the solace that your soul desires, it's found in a war zone now. Isn't that an irony? It's like, I want peace and I want comfort, I want joy. Come to the war zone. That's where you find it. You have to die to live. It's backwards, isn't it? You have to go through agony and suffering to find joy, to find peace. You have to go to the cross to find the empty tomb. That's not the way we want it. And as a result, so many people miss it. It's called a narrow way, and few are those who find it. A narrow meaning a way of difficulty and compression. I'm not going there. There's a broad way this way and this way. Yeah, you're going to be devoured this way and this way. This is the way you must go. Walk ye in it. There's a way that seems right unto man, but it leads to death. It's broad. It looks comfortable, but it goes over a cliff into the pit of hell. And there's a way that is right unto God, named Jesus Christ, and it leads to life. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. You see, Jesus' body is an actual house. He's even saying it right there. It's a house. It's a temple. It's a dwelling place. It's the dwelling place of God, very specifically. And what's a shocker is when Paul says, do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? You see, he is our house. And when we enter into him, we find salvation. We find life. And yet then he makes us into his house. And he moves into us. We become the very dwelling place of God. We're known as the body of Christ. You could say the temple of God. The temple of Christ. Are you willing to call this dangerous place home? Are you willing to sell all other property and move here to this place? By the way, I'm not talking about Ellerslie. That could be vastly misunderstood. (laughs) I'm talking about Calvary. I'm talking about the place of death and the place of suffering. Are you willing to sell all other properties? you got a nice beach home in the Caribbean. Comfort and nice. No one ever fights you there. You don't want to go to a war zone. Are you willing to sell your beachfront property in the Caribbean to come to the cross? To enter into Christ? Oh, yes. You see, the only way you can say that, because some of you could say, have you ever seen my beachfront property? Don't answer for me, Eric. It's beautiful. Have you ever seen my Savior? Have you ever seen your Savior? Have you ever seen his majesty? Have you ever seen his glory? Have you ever seen his beauty? You know, I'm sure your beachfront property is rather nice. It pales. It's gray. It's a garbage dump next to what I'm going to. I know that's hard to even conceive of, but that's the facts. That's how beautiful, how glorious he truly is. Are you willing to throw away everything that can't coexist in this divine and heavenly home? This is a... An awkward one. You entered into a home, and do you know that if you entered into the home of God, imagine we took a field trip to heaven, and we entered into the temple of God in heaven. You know that conviction would probably come fairly quickly to us? And we'd recognize, first of all, he keeps a very clean home. Can't you just imagine that? It smells nice, and it's orderly and clean. It's not like just your dirty clothes from the night before just strewn on the floor. God didn't just take off his pajamas and throw them there. 
You know that it's orderly. You know that everything is decent and in order. You know that everything is honorable. The way you even watch the cherubim treat King Jesus, you're convicted because of how lowly you have treated him. Just a quick sight of this. What did Isaiah say? Woe is me. That's what he saw. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He was in the temple. And he was sitting on the mercy seat, on the great throne of God, in the holy of holies. And an angel had to come and touch his lips, for he was a man of unclean lips. We need to have our lips touched. And when we come into this home, we're coming into his temple. We're coming into Jesus, in whom is no sin. Uh, well, that's awkward, because that can't be said about us, can it? We're coming into that clothing of Jesus Christ. And when we come in, the Holy Spirit begins a work. It's called sanctification. And he says, you see, to live here, I need to begin to remove these things from you. And this is how I work. You've come into a home which is very different than this earth, very different than the world. It's like heaven. And so you are now living in my presence. And to live in my presence, my presence will shape you. It'll bring conviction. But I will do it gently. I will train you up just as a father does his little children. You know that a father doesn't train his children in a day. He trains them in a lifetime. And the same is true with how God gently works on us. We have no access to such a Holy Spirit outside of his shed blood. But because of his shed blood, he's able to not just clothe us in righteousness, but actually work righteousness into us. And we never lean on our own. We never lean on our perfection or our holiness. However, he is working us in a holiness, a purity, a truthfulness. He's removing lies from us. He's removing lust from us. He's removing fear from us. And this is his gentle work. Are you willing to throw away everything that can't coexist in this divine and heavenly home? Are you willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to your life? Bomb blasts, bullets constantly, screams and shouts, mockeries, disdain, false accusations. God, why must I live in such a place? This is where he lives. Didn't you know that? This is a season of persecution. Just as David was hunted for 11 years by King Saul, and those that followed him had to leave everything and live in a cave with him. Yet he was the rightful king. When we come to the rightful king, we need to recognize that we share in his sufferings. We share in the fellowship of them. When the mockery comes, it's coming towards him, but now we share in it. And when they throw a rotten tomato at him, it hits us in the face. We're not used to that. And yet, guess what it does? It bonds us closer together than we've ever been before with our beloved. This is what you went through for me. And now we begin to share it with him. And there's an intimacy that is kindled in and through it that is so far beyond anything we could ever fathom or imagine. Are we willing to move into a place where the sound of war will be the background score to our life? Are we willing to choose the ignominy that is associated with this location, the shame that is associated with this location? For those of this earth, call those that dwell here in this shanty fools, idiots, the off-scouring of the world, refuse, garbage, ignorant, small-minded, intellectually inferior. Gulp, are you willing? 
Are you willing to fall in love with this place, cherish as your eternal dwelling and covenant to never leave? Whether in sickness or in health, whether living in plenty or in want, and whether it emits bomb blasts or the cooing of turtle doves. It doesn't matter which way it is. This is a covenant until death do us part. You're entering into a covenant just like marriage. Marriage is merely a symbol of the covenant we enter into with Jesus Christ. And to enter into this place, we are entering into a covenant with the living God. It's my life for yours, my body for yours, my blood for yours. Are you willing to enter into a covenant? And no matter how difficult it gets, you do not run from your covenant. I don't care how hard it is in your marriage, you don't leave. You don't run out. You see, we have a job to do, and we need to begin to learn how God bonds and covenants to us. Because now that we're in him, he gives us the strength to bond and covenant to him. And so we will adhere to him, even when we're being asked to deny Christ. Otherwise, we will be cut into pieces. And we say, I could never deny my Lord. He is my love. And even when you kill me, I just get closer to him. They cannot touch us. Do you know where you live? Do you know your eternal home? Do you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Has that been firmly established in your soul? Do you have the assurance that you need that you are home? That you are where you ought to be and nothing can take you from that place? Are you willing to make the epicenter of the most dangerous earthquake in universal history your dwelling place? That's quite, a, it's quite the bragging rights, isn't it? This is what Paul boasted in. You ever seen where I live? Yeah, I know you got that place you know, on the beachfront in the Caribbean. I got the most important place in all of history. <laughs> I live there. Yeah, I'm intimate with the King of Kings. Because <laughs> that's where he's asked us to live. That's his life. That's his life imparted to us. He's given us everything, and we move in. There is only one house. You know, there's not multiple options here. There's only one house to choose from. And you can say, well, what about my beachfront in the Caribbean? Are you not calling that a house? Well, how about I say it this way? There's only one house in which you can find salvation. Well, there's a lot of houses you can live and die and go to hell in. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the one singular location in which you can find hope and salvation and rest for your soul. There's only one place. And you're like, why is it in the middle of the bomb blasts? Why is it in the middle of the earthquake? Why is it at the epicenter? Well, there seems to be a little proving and testing of your faith here, isn't there? You see, you have to walk through the bomb blast. You have to walk through the enemy fire even to get there. All the crowd around you are mocking you, hurling insults at you. You just got blasted in the side of the head with a rotten tomato. Keep going. Some of you are hesitating. I don't know about this. Keep going. That is the only place on earth in which you will find life. I know they mock you. I know they ridicule. I know they're calling you small-minded, foolish, and an idiot. That is wisdom. Enter into it. Let him be your salvation. Out of all the real estate on earth, this is actually the lone option. By man came death. In Adam, all die. Every other location on earth is what's called Adam. It's the old man. Any other house you try and find refuge in, any other house you try and find salvation in, it's Adam. And Adam 
is under the curse. He's under the law. And the just penalty for that is death. And the wrath of God still hovers over the Adam life. The only way to escape the wrath is to enter into the one who's already absorbed it. This house has already absorbed that wrath. And it cannot fall on it ever again. This wrath has already experienced death. And death can have no place on this house or in this house ever again. This house has satisfied all justice. This house has established perfect righteousness and the merits to enter into the eternal domain of heaven, into the presence of God. It's the only place that has ever done it. This house has gained the access. And so when you enter into it, you enter into the one and only place in all earth that can take you home. By man came also the resurrection of the dead in Christ shall all be made alive. There's only one house, and that's Christ. In Adam, you die. In Christ, you live. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There are your houses. You could say two houses to choose from. Your old life and Christ. Anything else you turn to, I don't care what it is, I don't care what other religion it is, I know this may sound politically incorrect, but Buddhism is wrong. I know this may sound politically incorrect, but Islam is wrong. I may this, may this, this may sound narrow-minded and closed-minded to all other possibilities, but Gandhi is not your means of salvation. You see, there is one means of salvation, and it is Jesus Christ. And it's his work on that hill, that shanty-like dwelling, covered in blood, that is the lone place, the only place in all the world that you can find it. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. See, this is location, location, location. Are you in the old, are you in Adam, or are you in Christ? You cannot be in both. You cannot have one foot in Christ and one foot in Adam. You have to be all in. Are you in? Do you want that house? Do you want to enter into that blood, that work of the cross, that work of redemption, that work of salvation? Then you have to leave the old life behind. You can't fit through the door. Your old life blocks you. You have to shed that life. You have to put it off. You have to repent is the concept. You have to turn from it and say, that's wrong. This is right. That is evil. This is righteousness. This is death. This is hell. This is suffering. This is life and life eternal. The one and only. You know that there's only one that is perfect? There's only one that is righteous. There's only one that is holy. There's only one that is chosen. There's only one that is elect. There's only one that is called. There's only one that is just. There's only one that is pleasing. There's only one that is worthy. There's only one that is exalted. There's only one that is glorified. And you could say, well, that doesn't leave a lot of room for me unless I'm that one. Uh, do you want me to give you a, well, there might be more here. There is only one that is the son of God. There is only one lineage that counts and that receives the promise. All glory, all praise, all power are his. And you're like, are you talking about me or am I on the outside of this list? If there's only one and it's not you, gulp. Because that's what you have to be. Everything on that list is what finds its way to life and salvation. And unless you can boast that list is yours. You have no life in you. In fact, you have an eternal destiny separated from God in absolute torment, anguish, and misery. So let's go through the list real quick just so you can see it. There's only one that is perfect. Is that us? 
Last time I checked, it wasn't me. I have a hunch, if I agree with Scripture, that it's not you too. You're not that one. You're not the Savior of the world. You're not the Messiah. There's only one that is. Righteous, holy, chosen, elect. And some of you say, well, wait a minute. I'm one of the elect. Well, you're elect when you're in Christ. You see, in Christ, you are chosen. Rufus, chosen of God in Christ. You see, we are. He is the chosen one. We are chosen in him. We are elect in him. We are called in him. We are holy, righteous, perfect in him. Not in and of ourselves. We are just, pleasing, worthy. We are exalted to that high station, sat with him in the heavenly places in him. We are glorified in him. It's not us. It's him, and we share in his work. We don't deserve it. If you're checking your pockets to see if you deserve this, well, I'll just break it to you. You don't. If we're going on what we deserve, we're in hell. We go on what he deserves. When we enter into him, we get what he deserves, and he deserves exaltation. He deserves glory. You see, we get to share in his life. And when we get a crown that we do not deserve, what do we do with it? We remove it and we throw it at his feet. I don't deserve a crown. I don't know about you. I don't. Why in the world do we get a crown? Take the crown off. Place it at the feet of the one who does deserve it. There is only one that is the son of God. There is only one lineage that counts and that receives the promise. All glory, all praise, all power are his. We are not that one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. And guess what? We're unclean. We cannot find it in ourselves to bring a clean thing out of it. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous. Jesus is that one. I remember asking Hudson. I had given him a very clear picture of what it takes to get into heaven. According to the law. The legalities of heavenly entry and heavenly access. To enter into the presence of God. Perfection, perfect righteousness. You cannot have any spot, any blemish, ever. Every word is weighed. Every thought is weighed. Everything. It's not just not committing adultery. It's not even looking at a woman lustfully in your heart. It's not even just not putting another God before you and bowing down to an idol. It's not ever putting yourself before God. Ever once. Ever. It's not just not stealing a piece of bubble gum. It's not stealing the glory and the attention from God and bringing it to yourself. We all stand condemned. We all stand guilty. So who can enter into heaven? And what Hudson, Hudson's answer was, no one. He said, you're right. Except one. You know, that's the gospel. No one can. Pause. Ellipsis except one. So, if you want to get to the Father, there's only one way. And when you get into that house, you've entered into Him. And His work becomes your work. His death becomes your death. His burial becomes your burial. His resurrection becomes your resurrection and His exaltation. His ascent and His entry into the throne room of grace becomes your bold entry. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And now you are in Christ, so you pray in the name of Jesus. 
And when you pray, it says all the promises of God in him are yes. And in him are amen. What's your position? Because you're in Christ, you have access unto the Father. And the Father delights to give you what you ask for. And the Son says, ask for the Holy Spirit. And when you ask, he says, don't worry. It's the Father's great delight to give it to you. The answer's already yes. I purchased it with my blood. When we enter into that house, that shanty the world sees, we find everything that we need for life and godliness. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. You want to get to the right hand. You want to get to the Father. He's the one gathering. He is the vehicle. He is the transportation device. He is the house. He is the clothing. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. That's the secret. When you know your position, you're a dangerous weapon on planet Earth. Come to the epicenter, the place of death, and live. The place of suffering, the great place of destruction, crushing of heads, and live. What a strange plea this is. Why would I come there? Unless you come here and enter into this death, you have no life in you. Unless you come unto the cross and let your old man be crucified with him. You will not ever live. There is only one way to live, and that's that cross. He's gone before you, and he's created a way through that open side for you to enter in and live. But it's a strange way of living, isn't it? The first sign of life is to throw off your old life and die. And then there's a little bud of resurrection life that immediately sprouts forth. Out of that death and in the soil of that suffering comes forth newness comes forth a life that is otherworldly it's heavenly come to the epicenter and live the difference between a visit and abiding are we supposed to just show up at the cross and check things out do a little survey of the grounds and say wow what a place maybe sing a song maybe take a picture on our iphone and come back and say yeah i was there i saw it I actually went to the actual spot that's a visit you know there's a difference between a visit and abiding Let's go through that. A visit, a stopover, a short-term excursion, a stay that is not intended to be permanent. How many of us have poked our head in the, in the work of the cross as if it's a museum? We look around and we're impressed. We read some of the plaques of what it says. Oh, in 8033, fascinating. You see, that's a visit. We don't want to live here. You've got to be kidding. I'm not going to live in the epicenter. I'm risking my life even coming here to take a picture. There's a difference between a visitor and one who moves in to stay. God isn't interested in people visiting. He's interested in people coming and living. So abiding, moving in, remaining, deciding that this is the spot. Martha, I love this property. Let's live here. Martha's like, what, Harold? Deciding that this is the spot, staying no matter the challenges, adapting to whatever the house demands. There's new rules in this house, and they're different from the house that you just left. 
You see, God's house runs different than your house. Are you willing to adapt to the way he runs a house? And cherishing and caring for the place as if it is your very own. This is my home. Where do you live? I, I live in Christ. Isn't that that shanty over in Jerusalem? Sort of off that beaten trail, the place they used to call the place of skull? That's where you live? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. You call that beautiful? You are strange. Why don't you let me take you on a tour? Let me talk to you about why I live here. I think your eyes may be opened. The third earthquake of the gospel. What? There's a third earthquake? Isn't that hilarious? I saved that one up. Originally, I was going to reveal the three in the beginning, but then I like held that one back. <laughs> the third earthquake of the gospel. The cross. The resurrection. You think of anything else that might be important? You see, we need power. We need life. We have access to that life, but we need God to indwell us. The cross, the resurrection, we'll call it the indwelling. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken. We'll call it an earthquake. Where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It was shaken. It's an earthquake. You see, all three of those dimensions were actually seen. God's saying, this is what matters. You want to live? You start here at the cross. You dwell here. You get resurrection life. And you get me in you. Always. Forever. And nothing can take me away. I am yours. You are mine. My banner over you is love. I am your mountain of protection around you of solid diamond, no matter what nuclear weaponry the enemy has scheduled or has conspired to send your way. It will not shake you. You will be steadfast and immovable. And when you put your confidence in me, you will not be put to shame. And though they kill you, you will live on. The enemy cannot stop the juggernaut of the church of Jesus Christ. We will win because he has already one. We can't help it. If we're in him, we win. It's almost too easy. The victory's already done. However, you need to live in faith knowing that. You need to remain when you're at because the enemy will keep saying, it's not one. I've got the upper hand. And when you look at the world today, you actually might want to agree with him. The church isn't very strong right now. And yet, guess who has the upper hand? Even when we look weak, God's still in control. Who sits enthroned in the midst, the middle of the middle? The lamb that was slain. And he said it, and I believe it. It is finished. He has accomplished that which was necessary. Everything that was requisite to gain for himself a people and to gain for himself a glory. And when he comes in triumph on his white steed, crowns upon his head, a garment drenched in blood on his thigh, an inscription of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the faithful and true when he comes, every knee bows. On heaven and in earth, and every tongue confesses, he is Lord. Amen. Done. Just as much as it was promised in the 24, and they said he will come, and he will look like this, he came. And just as much as we know, he will come again. He will. And when he comes, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. He is Lord. The epic entry. When the great legendary hero comes to earth once again. 
He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. Listen to this. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. You see, there's a foreshadow here that Jesus is giving in John 14. He's beginning to talk about the Holy Spirit. John 15 is a passage about abiding. It's the abiding in the vine. And that's what's just up ahead. But we have this foreshadow. And that is, look, my end goal is that I am going to come and abide with you. I will be in you, is what he's preparing us to understand. God has come to abide in us. A lot of people skip over the cross, and we go straight to Pentecost. And as a result, there's oftentimes a lot of distortion amongst those that hold the Pentecost because they never started and lived and reasoned through Scripture from the cross. Pentecost is real. It's important. It's critical. Marked by an earthquake. And yet, you understand Pentecost and the holy, holy, holiness of God that is being given to us at Pentecost, that God is moving in. The presence of God, like a cloud, is coming in and calling this his temple. Every one of the priests fell down flat on their face when that happened in the Old Testament. In other words, this is serious business. Ananias and Sapphira fall over dead when they stand up against this and attempt to lie to the Holy Spirit. We do not mess with these things. God is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. How is he going to come? He says, first, you get into me. You make me your home, and then my spirit can dwell in you. So, but first, we must go to the epicenter and make him our forever home. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we're in Christ, then we can enter boldly into the throne of grace and obtain that grace that we need. In John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. Don't visit me. Abide in me. Come. This is the spot. Move in. Leave your old life behind. Shed that old man. Take on me as your clothing. Abide in me. And then what's the next line? And I in you. That just goes together, by the way. A lot of us try and split these things up, sort of like justification, sanctification, justification, then 20 years later, God begins to sanctify us. When you are grafted into a vine... Did you know that you are justified in the sense that you share in that vine's merit? That vine is now your home, and that you are now not classified as an individual branch. You're part of the vine. And so, just as we are grafted into Jesus, we are justified by his righteousness. His work on the cross is actually our legal justification. It happens immediately when we're grafted in. But what else happens immediately? Sap begins to course in. Well, that's sanctification. The Spirit of God is moving in, and he's beginning to be holy in and through us. And that which is unholy in us, what does the Holy Spirit do? Pushes that out. And we begin to bear the fruits of that sap coming in. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And so a lot of times we split these things up. Well, I'm in Christ, and now I need to wait for five years before Christ is in me. If you abide in Christ, Christ immediately begins to move within you. And this is just how it works. You've been brought unto the Father. And so if I'm leading someone through the gospel, I'm going to say, are you firmly established in Christ? Then where do you sit? I sit at the right hand of the Father. Ask the Father then, in the person of Jesus Christ, for his life sap, for his spirit, for his holy life, for the spirit of Christ to come in and dwell within you. 
to live and move and have his being in you. You have access to it. There's no no. There's no, well, you know, I can't just give that to anyone. He'll give it to his son. And you are in his son making a plea and a petition. And you have access unto the great gift of the life of God. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. You don't just abide in him, he must abide in you. But you have access unto that great spirit of God in Christ. Leverage that position. You have access unto love. You have access unto humility. You have access unto the mind of Christ. You have access unto wisdom and knowledge in Christ. You have access unto everything you need for life and godliness, including the Holy Spirit. Ask. You have access. Not in your own pockets. Don't look there. Go to him and say, Jesus, I'm in the shanty. I'm in the work of your shed blood. I've come here, and I know that this is the place. This is the place that you have promised in your word that if I come unto this tree and eat of its fruit, I will live forever. And the fruit that I see is you. You are the offering. You are the sacrificial lamb. You are the fruit that when I eat of you, you are the food, the Bethlehem food, the bread that has come down from heaven. And when I eat of you, I have life. We have come unto that tree, and guess what? We are clothed. And when we're clothed, we become clothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified. Herein. This is how you bring glory to the Father. By entering in and calling the Son your home. This is where I live. I covenant with my King here. Sickness and in death, whether living in plenty or in want. Whether it's easy or difficult. Whether hear the sounds of bomb blasts or the cooing of turtle doves. This is my home forever. And even if heaven was a war zone, this is my home forever. It just happens to be that heaven's not a war zone. Praise God. But even if it was, we want to be where he is forever and always. Herein is my Father glorified that you may bear much fruit, so you shall be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy might be full. I, I, it's hard to describe how in the middle of a war zone you can have the happiest people on earth. However, when you abide in him, his joy abides in you. And it's hard to explain. We do a lot of leaping here at Ellerslie. And we just are happy. It's sort of hard to explain. You know, I'm falsely accused, I'm uh, hated and despised, people want me dead, and I can't help but leap and love life and consider myself the most blessed person on earth. Who wouldn't want my life? And there's a whole bunch of people like, I wouldn't. <laughs> Do you know where I have found my refuge, where I've found my home? Oh, the delight of it. If you could only just somehow sneak into my life for a day and live in my shoes, you'd understand why I live there. It's beautiful. It's heaven on earth. 
in the midst of a war zone. That's the end. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.